Our reading this evening is from St. Luke's Gospel, the 10th chapter. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Parenting, it seems, is one long series of tests. Children are experts at testing their parents. 
So there's a moment that happens when, for the fourth or fifth time, your kid has thrown some food out of their high chair. The question is, are you going to pick it up off the floor one more time? Are you going to pick that fork up off the floor one more time? They're putting you to the test. They want to know just what they can get you to do and what they can get away with. There are some moments that are really decisive. It's really one long series of tests, but there are always some moments where it becomes very clear that this is a test. This is an important moment. So a child wants something, and now you have to decide. The answer is no. How much of a fight are you willing to have? There's going to be a fit. And when that fit is thrown, are you going to give in? Or are you going to hold your ground? It's a test. What's going to happen? Now, in either case, whether you give in or you hold your ground, there's a lesson learned. If you give in, the lesson learned is, that's what I have to do to get my way. I just have to throw a fit. And that lesson is learned very well, and it's hard to break. <laughs> Any parent knows that. Right? But if you stand your ground, there's another kind of lesson learned. The boundaries are learned. The authority is learned. Who's in charge? What goes is learned. And there's a kind of joy, a strange kind of joy, that a parent experiences in that moment, in that moment when a child is throwing a fit. There's a strange kind of joy, not delighting that your child is miserable, certainly not least of all if it's in a public place. There's no joy in that, but there's joy in this. That in saying no and getting a reaction from your child, you know that the lesson is sinking in. You know that because they're throwing a fit, they're paying attention. Because they're throwing a fit, you know that they've heard your no. They've heard your answer. There's a kind of joy. It's a strange kind of joy. It's a joy that you might say you're having in confounding them and bringing an end to their pride and stubbornness and willfulness. There's a kind of joy in saying, this is the end, and now I know, and you know, how we relate to each other, how we stand with one another. It's a kind of joy in learning, in the child learning, that it's their own desires, really, that are the source of their misery, that mom or dad are ready at any time to comfort and console, but so long as they're stubborn, as long as they're digging in their heels, there's lots of pain and lots of sorrow and lots of tears, but the moment they give up on themselves and trust their parents, the moment they do that, there's peace and humility and love and affection. There's a lot of joy in that, although it involves going through this painful moment. And parents are right, I think, when they say, it hurts me more than it hurts you. It's true. Right? You don't like seeing your child suffer that, but you rejoice. You do rejoice that they're learning a lesson, and that lesson is going to shape them for the future. There's joy in that kind of confounding. I think this is the kind of joy that Jesus is experiencing, that he's describing when he rejoices in the Holy Spirit and thanks his Heavenly Father that these things have been hidden from the wise and understanding. Jesus rejoices that the people in this world that you would expect to understand the kingdom of God, that you would expect to understand authority and power, that you would expect to be able to figure things out and make their own way, it is exactly those people who are confounded by the gospel, who can't understand it, who have their ears stopped and their eyes closed, who are frustrated by Jesus. It's those people, the ones you would expect to be able to figure this out, as they from whom the kingdom of God has been hidden. And Jesus rejoices. He thanks his heavenly Father 
that the kingdom of God has been hidden from them, which is a strange kind of a joy. It's a strange kind of a thing to be grateful for. Why would God want, why would Jesus want people not to understand? Why would he want their ears to be stopped and their eyes to be blinded so that seeing they may not perceive and hearing they may not understand? It has something to do with our sinful and fallen human nature. That is, if the wise and discerning, if people who have their lives figured out, if it's because of their reason and their strength and their might that they make their way to the kingdom of God, then of course it will be a moment of pride. They'll feel like they are the ones who have solved their sin. They'll feel like they are the ones who have found their way to God. They have discovered, they have discovered truth and beauty and righteousness. If it were left up to us and our wisdom and our understanding to find God or to understand the kingdom of God, we would make it into something that it should never have been in the first place. We'll make it into something of our own designs, our own imaginations. They would take the things that belong to God and they would turn them in their own image. And so, God hides it. He hides his kingdom from the people of this world who are understanding and wise. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, look, dear Corinthians, he says, not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were rich, but God chose to reveal his kingdom to people who are nothing at all, people who have no claim to anything for themselves, people who understand that they can't figure it out on their own, to people who recognize that they are lost and bewildered in this world and in this life. It's to them that the kingdom of God is revealed, not taking any credit for that on their own, not thinking that they deserve it, not abusing God's name by taking it for themselves. This is why Jesus speaks in parables. He explains it to the disciples. He says, look, not everybody gets to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but it has been revealed to you who are lowly and humble, to you who receive it like children and not as those who are proud and arrogant. It's been hidden from those people. This is how God regards them. In Psalm 2, God asks the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And then he goes on to describe what God is doing in the heavens. It's a strange thing. Listen to what it says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs when the nations rage, when the wise and discerning and understanding of this world, when the powerful and the rich and the mighty, when they're banging their heads against a wall because they can't figure it out, he laughs. And he holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus rejoices and he thanks his heavenly father that the kingdom of God has been hidden from the rich and the powerful and the mighty and the wise and the understanding because the hiddenness of the kingdom of God is what brings those people low. It's what humbles them. Coming face to face with the wrath and fury of God is needed in that moment to bring them to nothing so that looking somewhere other than to themselves, looking instead to God, they might be saved. Jesus rejoices, and he thanks his heavenly Father that these things have been hidden, but he also rejoices and thanks his heavenly Father that they've been revealed to you. Now it's no high praise that those to whom he reveals his kingdom, these holy things he calls infants, little children. It's the description that he gives of the disciples. They're his little children. 
They're surprised. Did you notice that in the lesson? They come back from this mission, going two by two and preaching the kingdom of God. They're surprised. They can't believe it. Look, Jesus, the demons, they were cast out in your name. They listened to us. They obeyed us. They can't believe it because, of course, they have no claim to any power of their own. They're not used to power and authority and might and strength. They know that they're nothing, and they marvel. They marvel that God has given such authority to people like them, to ones who cannot understand it, to ones who can't lay claim of it, to ones who receive it as a child, as a gift. It's what we're about to sing in our canticle, in the Magnificat. This is the next part of our service. It's the Song of Mary, to whom the angel Gabriel comes and announces that she's going to have a child. And Mary sings a song. As she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, she praises God that he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, that he has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts, that he has exalted the lowly, that he's revealed his kingdom and his goodness and his love to those who can receive it, that is, those who know they need it. Like Mary, we should pray. We should pray that when we are proud, God would humble us. That when we think we are something, God would make us nothing. That when we think we are mighty and strong and able to make it on our own, that God would show us, that he would teach us. Even by suffering, if that's what it takes, that he would teach us that we cannot make it on our own. We should pray that God would teach us to fear him. Not to fear anything else, not to look anywhere else for good things, but to look to him alone. We should pray that God would teach us to rejoice with him, not in spite, not in anger, but rejoice with him when the wise and discerning are confounded, when they throw a fit, when they can't stand it, when they come face to face with God's mighty judgment, because that is exactly what it takes to save them. That's what it took to save us. We should rejoice that God has taught us to trust in him. We should rejoice that he has written our names in heaven. We should rejoice and thank God along with Jesus that these things have been hidden from the wise and understanding, but they've been revealed to little infants like us. Blessed are you. Take Jesus' words to heart. Blessed are you, for your eyes have seen things that people for ages and ages have longed to see. Wise men and philosophers have peered into the heavens for time immemorial, hoping to see God, to glimpse God by their own might, and they could not do it. But God has revealed himself to you. He has shown himself to you. He has humbled you and brought you low so that he can give you every good thing. He does it day in and day out by delivering to you his own son, and in his son the forgiveness of sins. Put your trust in him. Praise God that he rejoices, that he laughs, that he delights to humble us so that he can be the one to exalt us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.